Hi, uh, good evening. Welcome to the National Academy. I'm Marshall Price, the curator of modern and contemporary art, and we're here uh, for another edition of the review panel. Um, before we begin, I'd just like to thank our funders for the review panel, uh, New York State Council on the Arts, and um, the Department of Cultural Affairs in New York. Uh, you can see on the screen as well uh, the program for the next review panel on November 19th, so I hope that you all will come. And on your way out, if you didn't see these cards on your way in, you can grab one, um, which gives you the entire uh, season. Um, so that being said, I'd like to introduce our moderator this evening for the review panel, David Cohen. David is the former gallery director at the New York Studio School and a former art critic for the New York Sun. And he is currently the editor and publisher of artcritical.com. David? Thank you very much indeed. Thanks to everybody at the Academy for making this event possible. Thanks to Graham White for recording it. You know you can hear um, and download podcasts of past installments of the review panel. If you go to artcritical.com slash review panel or just find review, review panel on the home page. Um, and as uh, Munro was uh, kind enough to point out, the details for the next panel, um, which you can find online, are also projected there for you. Um, let me get straight down to the first uh, duty, uh, pleasurable duty, which is to introduce the panel, um, rather essential task, which I managed to, in my enthusiasm for getting on with the job, forget to do last month. Um, from uh, your left onwards, Greg Lindquist is a painter. He's represented by Elizabeth Harris Gallery. He's a contributing editor at artcritical.com, and his writings can also be found at the Brooklyn Rail and elsewhere. Barbara McAdam is deputy editor at Art News. She has former associations with New York Magazine and with, uh, uh, with Art and Auction. Seems to be a lot of formers and formalities going on, so certainly in my uh, introduction. Um, so John Perot won't mind if I mention that formally he was art critic for The Village Voice and Soho News. John is a pioneer of art blogging. Uh, his blog is arttopia.com. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. Good. Who's, who's a first-time visitor to the review panel? Anybody here for their first time? Oh, okay. Yes, one lady. So then uh, two people, three people of varying genders. Excellent. Let me, therefore, gentlemen and ladies, so let me just, therefore, uh, remind us all and introduce those very welcome newcomers to the format of the evening. We will look at a PowerPoint display of the first two shows that we're reviewing. Then the panel will get down to business and review them. Then audience members will be welcome to probe us with some questions or let off some steam with their own comments. Uh, we definitely don't subscribe to that notion that a question has to be a question. You can leave off the question mark and just make it a statement. Just as welcome but make it a short statement. So, 
with no further ado, let's get down to seeing our first two shows under discussion, which are those of Oliver Herring at Mullenstein and Susan Fracon at David's Werner. Great. So if you, if you cap it now, that'd be fantastic. It shouldn't go to sleep. Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. So, John, um, we should obviously make, state, state the obvious to anyone who hasn't made it to see the show. Did it, how many of you, don't be shy, uh, tell us if you got to see Oliver Herring's show at Mullenstein, right? Oh, well, good. excellent. Very good. Um, uh, for the benefit of the remaining people, let me just state what might seem obvious, and forgive me if it's patronising you with, with the obvious, but the uh, photographs are not photos that were on display. They are stills of an ongoing performance that fills the gallery during the month or so of the exhibition. Um, so, John, is this a, very much a throwback to the, uh, the golden age of happenings and performance, that we have a gallery where, instead of a static image, we have a, a whole uh, program, an evolving uh, form um, that the shows take? Yes and no. Um, he was one of the artists, um, I don't know if the audience knows this or if you want them to know it, we were asked to nominate exhibitions before, uh, uh, way back in the beginning of this thing. And uh, Oliver Herring was one of the artists I nervously nominated. Um, but I, uh, the criteria I used for my suggestions was shows that I thought I would want to see in any case. And his certainly was one of the shows I wanted to see because I had read about and perhaps seen some of his earlier work, which um, involved knitting of uh, cellophane tape in sort of memory of Ethel Eicherberger, who is a famous drag queen performer with the Theater of the Ridiculous and other venues. And um, I also was um, knew about his, I don't know what you would call them, uh, photo sculptures in which he photographs, um, sometimes nude, sometimes not, models very closely in many photographs, and then uh, assembles the fragmented images on a, um, usually a styrofoam form, so that you get, um, if you squint, a rather representational image of the model, but it's actually made up of many different photographs. So I thought that might be interesting. And I was um, um, uh, delighted to find out that he had moved far, or interested to find out that he had moved be beyond those things. And I happened to be, and when you go there, he's there all the time, and he's very approachable. And he said he had not done any work in his studio for at least two, perhaps three years, and that he was had really been concentrating on the kind of work that you saw a residue of mainly tasks, he calls one, one kind of thing, tasks, performances. Some of them, to me, I saw three of them, and then I looked on the internet and on his Facebook site and saw other examples of this kind of work. So I can't say I know it thoroughly. But uh, some of them, like the last one I, I saw um, yesterday, was um, three, four models standing in various poses in the gallery, and then he was dripping fluorescent paint on them, turning off all the lights, and then photographing the various effects. 
So it had a feeling, as did two of the others that I saw, of kind of eavesdropping on a photo shoot. I don't know if any of you have ever seen a photo shoot. It's kind of fascinating, you know, to see behind the scenes how how the what, you know, the fashion or whatever it is 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 actually constructed by the placement of the camera, the props, and people acting like lunatics. Now, fortunately, for those of you who were there, um, which is most of you, um, one of the terrific things about Herring is that he has a very gentle persona um, that's very different from things I remember happening in the past and happenings mm. and performances. Yes, there isn't any of the the um, abjection or the right. vitriol yeah. that one associates with exactly. anything from like the Viennese actionists or uh, who also do splattering, but not of such innocuous right. things as paint. Barbara, um, uh, how did you how did you re- respond to this uh, exhibition? Well, I think what's so interesting is that he really does engage his audience and he does care about their participating and their mm-hmm. being part of the work. And so you have that kind of the, the potential for accident that, that he's mm-hmm. willing to tolerate and, you know, there's risk and then he's got to trust them. And mm-hmm. it turns out that something interesting always turns out. Today he had um, a man sitting all day for eight hours, having himself painted and then having his head shaved in little patches and having those patches painted different colors and having his suit and having his things cut up and so on. But um, And then he had in the gallery at the same time those mylar sculptures that it turns out weren't working out when he started to cut things up and make these sculptures. And then he had... Oh, I'm sorry. The models, the people who were participating, cut it up themselves on themselves, and they turned to these wonderful sculptures. So, I mean, there's that sort of blend of control and accident. Yes. Um, so, Greg, uh, in, in, in contrast to uh, an exhibition like um, um, uh, Tino Segal's, where um, there's, there's very little visibly to engage with and a great deal of control from um, the, the artist in, in the performance experience. Um, as, as Barbara says, this is uh, uh, an arena for an aesthetic of chance to some extent, uh, but also obviously um, we, for this post-studio artist, as, as John has, has accurately uh, identified him, um, uh, this is uh, a place where uh, the model, uh, ironically, becomes the paintbrush, so to speak, with those spray pieces. Um, did you feel any sort of dynamic between uh, control and accident uh, in your experience of the work? Right, and he's also directing a lot of these people in what they do. Um, but I, it's funny you brought up human, uh, human as a paintbrush, because I thought about Yves Klein. Mm-hmm. And I thought about um, not only does he use international climb blue or like mm-hmm. something similar to it, but I mean, on one of the slides you saw a blue sprayed outline of figures, which mm-hmm. is to me like a direct send up to some of Klein's spraying of, of models with blue and then pulling them away, and you have like an after image of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it also kind of uh, he had uh, people spitting dyes. Yes, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was very Eve Kleinish in terms of expanding mm-hmm. that idea of, you, of you, painting. You can see, yeah. see, he has a finished tape that you can see on YouTube. It's really mm. great. Yes, the the, yeah. the model in that one is actually spewing or spitting out uh, dyed water, 
on the window of the, the gallery with a, a, a bemused, in fact, right. hysterical um, on audience. On the wall, on himself. Jumping over the air, yeah. almost mm-hmm. the ceiling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So do you, do you feel that, um, John, there was a degree of... Um, obviously, it's, it's, it's fun... Uh, in that mm. sense, but is there also a sense of um, satire in, in the piece? Is it satire of, of fashion I, I or of, I of art? Get that, I didn't get that sense at all, really, that it was satire. I think he's probably well aware as, you know, of Eve Klein as anybody else and all the kind of references that you can get from his work. The thing that surprised me, and I don't remember if he said it to me in the gallery or it was something I, he said when he was on um, that horrible PBS program where they interview R21. It was, I forget the, the, one of those PBS boring old guys interviewing uh, Oliver Herring and, um, was it Cindy Sherman? It was um, someone else. Uh, sort of a, a woman who does set up photography. Her name will come to me. Oh, yes. Laurie uh, Simmons. Laurie Simmons. Simmons. So it was either there or in the gallery, and he said, which to me was kind of shocking, that he thought that what he was doing, some, a lot of things he was doing was collaboration with the people, and they're all volunteers. He found them mostly on the Facebook, because he's always on the road doing mm-hmm. these events on Facebook, and that um, they keep coming back for more. So mm-hmm. he began to realize that, why were they doing this? And that there was a need for people to have self-expression, and that he thought, mm-hmm. actually, that that's what art was really about, self-expression and that's something we've been taught, I mean, not me, but some of us, so maybe some people in the audience, we're supposed to not acknowledge. It's a very anti-formalist um, and anti-art form kind of thing to admit that art might have a, if not central to it, at least a component of self-expression. Mm-hmm. And personal development, I guess, would be the next stage to that. And, and that, I think, is another uh, division between what he's doing, which is really elusive, that's what was fascinating mm. about it to me, um, and what other performance artists were doing in the past. Yeah. But what, uh, taking up this, this notion of self-expression, uh, Barbara, um, it's, a, it's an unusual displaced self-expression if, if the artist has set mm-hmm. up the circumstances for someone he is directing to self-express, but according to his own expression. What, 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 what do we think really the status is of the participants, of the models, or the, the, the doers, let's call them the actors? Well, they are actors, and he's a director. I mean, there's no question, but, but he does, I think, reluctantly let them gain control when he thinks they have an idea, and I think mm-hmm. he's pleased and things, but he does turn it to aesthetic ends, mm-hmm. and some people may object to that nowadays, I don't know, but he does make very beautiful products mm-hmm. in the end. And I think that's the other thing that's interesting. I think this is actually the crucial. I'm not sure about the What about the materials? Can we talk about that? We can talk about materials, we can talk about products, we can talk about processes. (laughs) Wherein lies the true beauty? If if there is beauty in this work, is it in the process, uh, Greg, in the product or in the materials? Well, I don't know. I mean, looking at materials, I mean, this is kind of like a recession buster show. I mean, you know, like you've got like food dye. Yeah, yeah you've got food dye, you've got glitter, you've got glittery paper, you've got mattresses, tape, all kinds of color tape. I mean, it's in terms of art materials, these are not very high art material, high end art materials. I mean, this is more like uh, after school, like <laughs> I don't, I don't, know, I don't know, uh, art class or something. Yeah. 
It's no, I like that. I like that because one of the things I've decided I'm against is the art supply racket. <laughs> and if you go to, I mean, go to Utrecht Linens any mm-hmm. day, and you'll see people lining up, spending a fortune, students and everyone else, on things that you know are going to end up with as dubious art examples or something. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, multiply that with the number of Utrecht Linens around the world, and you see a really big business. So I caution everyone about the art supply racket. Well, also, On the other hand, if you do have something you want to be seen and admired in 600 years' time, food dye might not do it. Well, no. <laughs> right. yes. um, so process product. I mean, because um, uh, the, 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 whole, the gallery is not that he's producing work for a show. The, the production is the show, so to speak. Right. So um, uh, it, it's, it's... But at the same time... Um, Rather than uh, a dreary, empty gallery and then uh, come at a set time, there'll be a performance like the, the chimpanzee's tea party, there is, um, uh, it is, the space is getting more and more colourful, more and more painterly, more and more uh, oh, filled yeah. oh, with, yeah. with increment and messy. I think the, the interesting, another interesting thing for me is that, you know, that used to be. Um, what was the name of the gallery before? Max, Max Protish. Max Protish. And, and Oliver has showed there were two daughters before. I can't imagine Max allowing such mayhem. <laughs> I mean, uh, the closest thing is maybe Oldenburg store mm-hmm. on East mm-hmm. 3rd Street, years mm-hmm. and years, which was altered continuously during its run. But for a commercial gallery to do that is, I think, kind of smart and, and brave. Because what are they going to get? A few videotapes that you can watch on YouTube anyway? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the other interesting thing is having the videos going constantly of the mm-hmm. former performance, so you right. have a kind of non-ending <laughs> retrospective of the show. Yes. And without an end, either. And the audience, though, are they warned from a legal liability point of view as they enter that not only might they get wet, but they're also going to be filmed. So <laughs> you know that as an audience <laughs> member, you are part of the, the work, not That's just true. the spectator of it. Yeah. Greg, does that have implications for the for the aesthetics of it. Well, you know, David, you talk about happenings, but I'm curious, does relational aesthetics come into this? I mean, because in the 90s, uh, decentralizing the art object, the, the discussion is around everything around the art object, everything around that experience, that participation, mm-hmm. rather than the objects itself. Because, I mean, you could argue the videos are, are the objects, or the records mm-hmm. of it. But Yes. But I, I think the object, I mean, it is part of the dematerialization, but it's a, sort of a rather wet part of the dematerialization of art. In red that, and uh, fuzzy. Red <laughs> and fuzzy and, and, uh, and colorful, uh, unlike if you pick up Lucy Lippard, most of the, well, her book is in black and white, but it is of a very black and white era. This is neo-performance, neo-conceptual. It's, it's a very colorful um, dematerialization, but you're right. It's, it's precisely, it's about what's around the art, and it's also... To some extent, even though it's very visceral, it's also conceptual, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it's saying, you know, well, what is paint? What is uh, mm-hmm. a brushstroke? Um, where does performance end and where does thing begin? So I think relational in that sense, is that what you meant by relational? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so does that therefore make it uh, perhaps problematic? Um, uh, are we happy with it as, it, as the, way, the way it is? Or... Does its condition leave us unsatisfied by it as an experience? That's my final question on, on Herring for the panel. Uh, uh, leave us unsatisfied. Um, 
Well, I'll tell you one thing I was thinking. Maybe I should write something about this for Artopia. And then I kept thinking, but I've missed a lot of them, and I'm mm-hmm. going out of town, and how am I going to see all of them? So this is, I mean, if I write about it, I have to include that factor, mm-hmm. that it is, if you write about it, unless you're totally devoted to the artist, mm-hmm. it's going to be writing about what you see when you go there, which may what be... What you might see. Yeah, you know, yes. it might be half an hour, or because I'm very hyperactive. Um, I think I was maybe there the longest... Perhaps maybe, you could get some statements from his groupies that follow him around. Oh, well, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. But isn't? But, but surely, um, I'll, I'll ask the question to John, but Barbara can answer it. I mean, surely, if if John or anybody is writing about this show, there isn't the same. There isn't the obligation that there might be to see an entire video, um, say, or an entire production of a play or something, because, precisely because because you cannot, unless you, I mean, nobody could see everything that could possibly right. be seen. Right. Therefore, that actually is part of the material condition of the show that you're right. writing about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You're well, right. Put. Mm. Well put, yes. Uh, I was hoping somebody would put yeah. it even better. But um, uh, let's... I think, I think we've got... We've come to a satisfactory conclusion on Herring. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's hard to express it in, in points out of ten, but then uh, good art criticism shouldn't be reduced to mm. points out of ten. Let's move from um, somebody... Uh, uh, self-consciously involved with the theatre of the ridiculous to a painter who, in some people's view, uh, approaches the sublime um, with uh, Susan Fracon at David Zwerner Gallery. Um, very interestingly, I think, um, when we've, got a, we've come from a, 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 a show of, of moving, precarious uh, materials and variables and... Um, uh, a broad spectrum of, of, of types and looks that to go to a show which has that um, austere, somewhat minimal um, uh, pared down quality um, also certainly uses very fine materials but not the kind you buy at Utrecht the kind you make yourself in your own studio although of course the linens would be uh, would perhaps violate John's um, budget uh, constraints <laughs> for artists um, Barbara, if I could start with you this time on, on Susan Fracon. Um, materials and material services are, are clearly something very, very active in this show. Um, just very straightforward question. Do you like the services or not? I do like her services, and I do think there's great variety in a strange way. And she builds them up with linseed oil, and they can using the same materials throughout, they have, they're very different. Um, and I think her work requires very close reading, and you have to spend a long time in front mm-hmm. of it. And you know, it flirts with you know, beauty, and a lot of people complain that it's beautiful. But it is really beautiful, and it's also very subtle, and uh, the colors blend from, if you look from one angle, colors merge and you go from another angle and you can actually see the demarcation so that your, your vision keeps shifting so you, it helps you keep reading the work mm-hmm. yes what, what, what Greg was your sensation of time in this show was it, something, was it a quick read was it a very slow show and, and did it seem to demand time How, what was it doing with time 
slows it down. I mean, it's a it's a slow read, and also uh, one one thing to point out too is that Suzanne Fricon wanted natural light only mm-hmm. in the show. Mm-hmm. So the problem is that you could go at the end of the day or on a cloudy day, you have a completely different experience, which mm. which was what happened when I went. So I mean, I was kind of squinting a lot and trying to see the colors and the surfaces, but. Um, I think it is it is a slow read, and I think that's what she's going for. Mm-hmm. But she complicates with the surfaces a lot of different associations with art history that can, you can bring to it. I mean, I looked at them and I thought Milton Avery with the shapes. Um, I mean, a, a lot of I, I think another easy read is um, Rothko, but the surfaces speak more to me to minimalism, to like the to like the the, the over polished pristine surfaces of Donald Judd or something like that. Really? That's curious, because John, one thing that was quite striking, that especially if one saw the show fairly early in its run and had the benefit of uh, McCracken's uh, installation mm-hmm. in the adjacent Jason. space, is um, my, my reaction was that this is, is very, 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 distinctly, very distinct from minimal art in that the surface is, mm-hmm. is very lively, very active, but also very strange. Um, not strange enough. Okay, right. Um, as you may, might know from reading my reaction to the Abex show at, at, at MoMA, I am in a mad search to find some justification of abstract art once again. And I'm extremely disappointed that this artist um, cannot hold that flag, as far as I'm concerned. I looked at her work very carefully when it was the biennial, and I looked at it again here. And for me, it's not a plus that I look at it and see Rothko. It's not a plus that I look at it and see Georgia O'Keeffe and bad landscapes. It's not a plus when I read the dreary press release and it emphasizes her mystery and her majesty. Ugh. And you know, I'm all for the spiritual in art. I'm all for abstraction that may or may not be based on nature. Rothko is one of my favorite artists that has ever lived. And maybe I'm expecting too much, but um, I, I was hoping that my first reaction at the Whitney Biennial would be corrected and that I would fall in love with her work, but I didn't. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> any, any panelists have anything to suggest to, to John to, uh, or to any other skeptic that would persuade them that, there's, that, that this has to be given another look? Barbara, perhaps. Well, I don't know how to persuade anyone since I, <laughs> since I think... No, but that's one of the things that one has certain predispositions and there's certain, yes. certain kind of art one likes and certain Well, kinds. but on the other hand, John said he loves Rothko to, to bits yeah. and Rothko's sublime. This, is, this looks like it's intentionally in, on the same track and it falls short. So is it simply that if you're on the Rothko track, say, you're prone to failure, whereas if you're on the um, Klaus Oldenburg happenings storefront um, track, uh, as, as say maybe, Oliver Herring maybe is. Maybe it's unfair. Yeah, it's just an easier, easier act of art. Is that, what is, it, is that what it is? Or is it, is it that um, actually it's a mistake to say she's on the Rothko track? That she's actually doing maybe something else? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I, the Rothko at all. I don't think so yeah. either. I mm. mean, I think, you know, well, you I can... Well, I don't, so that's... Yeah, that's you can, you, but yes? Maybe that's a mistake. But what do you yes. do? Wear Rothko blinders? No, that's what I'm, that was what I'm saying. There are you those see, we all see things. Colors. But There's that darkness. There's that 
Yeah, but it doesn't have the same effect. No. And that's another thing to ponder, why not? And one could have gone to Rothko and said, oh, I see, he's doing the Bonnard thing. Oh, and then uh, held him up to Bonnard and found him failing to Bonnard. And then, but then you say, no, actually, well, he's well, doing something different. I think what I'm saying, if, mm. if there had been something beyond that, I would have. Uh, I didn't feel something beyond these 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 right. sort of minor questions and doubts. It didn't hit me over the head in any way. It didn't make me say, oh wait, I I have to stay even longer than the hour and a half I've spent here. I have to come back tomorrow and the next See it in better light, yes. See it in better lights, or I can't mm. wait to see what she does next. And then what I left yes. was, why did this woman have a show at the DF, at the Dimineal Foundation in Texas? I don't understand it. It's a mystery. She's a st- not quite, well, that's it. What, what about the scale? I mean, these are kind of, these are, these are larger than what her... Paintings are usually scaled, right? No, they're about average. I mean, the, she, the she, the she's she's uh, she's best. She's known equally, I think, for works on paper uh, and for um, the, the, the the large linens. Mm-hmm. And they have a very different sensibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're much they're much quicker. They're much more uh, sort of primitive, spontaneous, um, and they use um, the actual support is is something that's. Intrinsically satisfying because uh, she uses found stationery from India and places like that. So um, it, it has. Are they the same kind of shapes? Um, a, sim- a, a comparable shape vocabulary, but no, not quite actually. No, the the shapes in the canvas in the canvases are um, more uh, rigorously kind of dome-like and arch-like, right. and, and the, the shapes. Window. Yes, the sh- the the the, the, um, uh, the shapes in the um, works on paper. Uh, first of all, there's a much there's a degree of chance because there's it's dripped liquid, and also uh, they just they just assume more sh- uh, more uh, vari- variated variegated shapes, a bit sort of bit comparable in a way to Tom Noskowski's shape vocabulary. But we're looking at the canvases. I think the canvases have to speak for themselves. I found I find the surfaces um, crucial to understanding uh, the 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 effect. And uh, the reason I was very keen to see if people liked or disliked the surfaces is because I don't think they're really about surface pleasure. I mean, they are... When you look at the whole canvas from a distance, there is this saturating effect, which is, I think, very sensual and very um, chromatically sort of pleasure-inducing. The surfaces are, I think, necessarily problematic and that they um, actually make us aware of uh, processes of, of of making and uh, of um, I know that it's it's it's, yeah. it's problematic to do this for an artist, an artist that comes to mind who couldn't look more different from her in every possible respect would be um, Lucian Freud or Frank Auerbach in that the way it's painted makes you realise that the image is hard won, so that the um, uh, there's there's less angst of course in a Freycon and it's a more of a, a sensuality. But I think they're sort of about the elusiveness of defining shape and color. Well, and that's like a rhetor- inten- They're intentionally Sorry. fractured by the matte and glossy passages of their, their surfaces. So, I mean, that's, to me, like how they're exactly opposite of a Rothko, because you can't see yeah. into them. The mm-hmm. surface stops you from, from right. seeing them as illusionistic window spaces yes. and spiritual in yes. that way, yeah, and that that to me, like you know, is 
is where the minimalism comes into me, the fuss over the surface. Right, yeah. right. So, fantastic. Well, some, some lively difference of opinion in relation to Freycon. Um, let's move on to our next two shows. Guillermo Quitka. Has this computer gone to sleep? Nope. Excellent. Sorry? Oh, sorry, sorry. Quite right, right. Lights, lights. I was looking at my watch and worried. I thought, my goodness, we're going to finish way too early this evening. And in fact, um, this is the moment where the audience, I'm, I'm surprised you weren't all shout, jumping up and down shouting oh, and saying, saying, where's my say? This is, uh, has Sarah Palin <laughs> taken over already? Can't we have our freedom of speech here? Uh, excellent. So, marvellous. Uh, uh, sometime, sometime review panellist Carol Deal, this time from the audience, is going to... Okay, that's a bit of a nuisance. Thank you for speaking up for good materials. I mean, even as a clumsy amateur scribbler, I've, I've Give that found... lady a discount. Mm. <laughs> yes, she's she's she's. Well, you could say that all work done with certain kind of limbus, lint stretch on canvas looks the same, and we know that in the big view of time, that's not going to last either. So there you are. Right. Okay. Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh, well, you you find I don't need to. Hi. Uh, in defense of Susan Furkan, I think that the artist she recalls for me is Ed Reinhardt, not Rothko, because uh, Reinhardt had a classical restraint quality that didn't feel like you needed that emotion that Rothko gets from you. It's more cerebral, and I like that. Right. Excellent point. Good. Thank you. There was a, a, somebody at the front, actually. Actually, you, you, there's a lady here at the front, but, but you find the speakers. So put your hand up if you want to speak. <laughs> I, <don't laughs> uh, I have a kind of a silly question, which is about Heron, uh, which um, is some portion of his performance or whatever, for sale at the end of the show or not? Very yeah, good question. And it's all very indicative that none of us know or care. I mean, yeah, but it's a perfect, and not invalidating the question, I, I which think is a his, one. his previous shows were mostly so. photographs, weren't they? The photographs yes. of yeah. the sculptures It's are. all being videoed, so it's got to, you know, some, take some sort of shape. Well, he has two monographs forthcoming, yeah. uh -huh. according to the press. Release. It's a good way of uh, acknowledging, you know, beating the recession to have works that are not for sale because you can say we didn't fail to sell anything because nothing was <laughs> but, but in the past he has sold I'm sure you could book him to come to your ch child's party and uh... <laughs> oh, I'm sure he would love it yes 
The uh, Oliver Herrings were for sale. They had prints from the day's actions on the wall. But I happen to have a copy of the uh, artist statement from the, um, from the gallery, and it's very interestingly written. Um, I don't know if you're interested in hearing Briefly, other people's absolutely. words. Please. I don't know if they're his words or if they're interpreted by the gallery, but it reads, neither wholly object or performance-based, Herring's work seeks to remove boundaries between things and the actions people perform to make them. By extension, he also redefines the roles of artist and audience, often becoming an observer of others performing in situations that he designs but can never wholly control. The art-making process becomes a site of vulnerability and risk-taking, a social experiment, an open laboratory for innovative modes of representation. And when I read this, I was reminded of um, Andy Warhol's work, where he would create the scenario and then step back from it and watch how people reacted or behaved to it. And I just wondered if that struck anybody from the panel. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's, let's perhaps actually see if anyone on the panel wants to answer it. Was there something in Warholian that... Uh, I think Oliver participates, he doesn't step back. Yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So his engagement becomes part of the scenario. And also I think that you were guys were talking about being post-studio and talking to Oliver in the galleries. He is talking about moving the studio from where he works into the gallery space. So he's not, his intention is not about being post-studio, it's about being transcendent from studio to the gallery and using it for the same purposes. Just having the audience participate in that activity. So he's opening up the art making process so you can uh, engage him and the process while he's doing his practice is right. what I got out of it. Also we have sparkles all over our loft from being in there yes. today he used glitter. <laughs> okay. He's I don't necessarily think the post, sorry Barbara. No yes. I'm sorry. I was just no, say ahead. he's also not an ironic artist, no, and, and no, in that no. way, he's not Warholian. Yes, I don't yes. But I, I would just say point. about post—that's post, a very—that's a central point. But I would also say that post-studio doesn't mean that you're post doing things that might have been done in a studio. Post-studio means just that you don't rent a space in Bushwick. You uh, actually make the work out of a private study space and in a public performance or viewing Street, or activity yeah. space or, or the, the public forum or the public realm, domain, etc. Anyway, not trying to be a thesaurus here. Anybody um, else speak? Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to say a couple things about Oliver, whose work I find to be very dynamic and very present, and I think that he was making active sculpture in the gallery, and some of it actually responds to certain dance things. I mean, we were in there one day, and there were a group of like four or five people laying on the floor crawling across the floor as he instructed them how to move. Mm. And they moved from one end of the gallery all the way down to the stairs. Into the street. Into down the, street, the stairs, yeah. down into the street, and he followed it the whole way. And so that becomes, mm. that becomes a thing at the same time that it's, and it's very active and it's very dynamic. Right, that's post-post-studio, because you actually... Oh, <laughs> but, and I also don't think it's absurd. I mean, I don't yes. think it's... I think it has... I mean, it's a task, it's a thing to do rather than something that's very bizarre. Right. And, right. Although it does have this sort of bizarre quality, but it's, you know, I think it's very inventive, and I think he finds it, to some extent, as he's doing it, 
even though I do think there must be some roadmaps in it. Yes. I think it's very interesting that you have these two, Susan Freecon and Oliver, together because I find Susan's show also active as a viewer. You walk in, you see the show in a certain mm -hmm. light, mm -hmm. it changes, you move around the piece, it changes, you come back three hours later, it's a different room with a different response. The color responds yes. differently. Exactly. When and she lectured actually on her work at the New York mm -hmm. Studio School, she presented these rather painful to watch um, long videos of um, basically <laughs> panning around uh, a painting. And the reason was uh, that she she was very anxious about lecturing to slides of her work statically because mm. for her it's so crucial to have that moving experience in front of the work itself that, that exactly the surfaces are animated by shifts in light and in the perspective of the viewer. Excellent. Makes the painting more sculptural. More, yes, mm -hmm. or more in time and in space. Lady at the front to speak. Uh, if you wait for the mic, that would be great. Thanks. Oh. Um, yeah, on Susan Freycon. Uh, you compared her to of several male artists. Do you think that um, is there any are there any women artists that come to mind that make the sort of um, abstract large pieces that she's making? Any that come to your is mind? It, I was trying to think of someone. I thought that maybe it was oh, unique in itself that that she is a woman <laughs> making this work. I, I, I immediately thought not only Agnes of Rothko. Martin but of Georgia O'Keeffe because of the boulder-like configurations. Mm -hmm. And also the gravitas behind the paintings, some of it uh, doesn't convince me. What about Marsha Hafif, even though you don't yes. actually have oh, the forms yeah. in it? But yeah. Yeah. Yes. Greg, uh, you mentioned scale in relation to uh, Susan's work. Mm -hmm. And I think, did you go in the room where she had very small or small uh, canvases or uh, I think I saw paintings. them from the door. Yeah. They um, because the scale is really crucial in her work. Her large scale mm -hmm. things involve you, and the smaller ones left me without a reaction at all. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the the brush stroke in those small works has a completely. They're much closer to the spirit of her works on paper actually yeah. in the. I'm sure they are worked slowly, but they have an immediacy and uh, in, in the way that oil sketches do. Anyone else bursting to say something about uh, one of uh, these two shows, Freycon or Herring? Otherwise, let's actually then move on to our uh, second half, our next two shows, uh, which are Guillermo Quitka at Speroni Westwater and Liz Cohen, no relation, I hasten to add, at uh, Salon 94 on the Bowery. No relation yet. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much to our very able projectionist. I love that directorial voice. Huh? Now bring it in. Get out. It definitely has some etiquette to learn, lessons to learn from Oliver Herring with his much more persuasive and gentle directorial tone. So, uh, Guillermo Quitka at, at Speroni Westwater's um, uh, uh, ziggurat, new ziggurat on the Bowery. Um, most reviews of this show have not been able to resist the temptation to dwell as much on the spectacular new building showcasing the work as on the work itself, but we will set higher formal standards here at the review panel. 
by uh, uh, focusing on the work itself. Oh, really? uh, perhaps, <laughs> hopefully. Um, Do we have the, to? The, um, uh, other than to say that uh, the, the, uh, uh, we've violated the rule of the review panel, which is to only look at recent bodies of work, in theory, uh, because this show incorporates one earlier body of work, but I think a very uh, useful point of reference with Quitka, the, uh, uh, the maps on the mattresses uh, installed in the moving gallery, the elevator um, uh, space. Um, now, Greg, uh, you're, as a painter, very concerned with uh, location, space, no space. Um, uh, Quitka, in that earlier piece, the, the map piece, is, is uh, supremely an artist, I think, um, obsessed with geography and history and uh, presence and absence mm -hmm. um, and, and mappings and realities. Um, but there's, there's me putting in my two cents worth, whereas what I really want to ask is of you, as, as, uh, as, a, as a writer and artist particularly concerned with uh, geography in art, whether uh, Quitka is in your pantheon as an artist geographer? Uh, no. Um, I mean, this show is really frustrating because it felt unfocused. I mean, um, you, have, you have these really salient references to art history, such as Cubism, Picasso, and Brock, and Futurism. Um, and then you have these, if you want to talk... Uh, pull in the Abstract Expressionist New York show again, you have this Oliver kind of Pollock-esque thorns as a motif. Um, but the maps, I felt like were highly literal. And I don't think they really got away from the imagery of maps. And the only exception I would say is that the installation I was most taken by of the extremely small beds lining this 10 by 20 moving gallery space which at the end of the day I found the machinery of the moving gallery space on the first floor when you walk in to be just as fascinating as the Liz Cohen car for example because mm. um, you have this you have this ceiling that's constantly raising and lowering um, but yeah, 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 fair enough, absolutely. Um, uh, Barbara, uh, Quitka is somebody that um, uh, he has a traveling retrospective at the moment. I was hoping to have got to see it by now, but probably will be going in the next week or so. It's now at the Hirshhorn, its final destination. Um, he's an artist I've been following for quite a while, and I think you probably have as well. Um, I find this to be a somewhat frustrating introduction to his work. Um, what's your take? Does this do him justice, this show? Um, well, I don't know if as a whole it works. I, I do, but it is sort of this kind of retrospective quality and you do get to see the things he's wrestling with and you, you have the past and present in, in the paintings when you have... Um, you know, where, he's, where he has done the accumulations mm -hmm. of you know, seating and charts and blah, 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 all those things. And then you have the, the, the sort of cubistic stuff, which reminds me most of the Portuguese, Miara da Silva. Oh, yes. And you look at that and, you know, you immediately see that. So you think about, you know, construction and deconstruction and trying to piece together mm -hmm. 
what he's interested in and trying to figure out where he's going to go with it too. I mean, you know, there was real sense of process and not closure in these works, and that was really mm-hmm. pretty interesting to me. Right, excellent, um, John. The 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 Cubist work that's um, something that was first seen at the Venice Biennale a couple of installments yeah. back um, in a solo show that he had there, sort of the the uh, ad hoc um, Argentine pavilion in a. Uh, deconsecrated squalor or church. Um, uh, curious, the cubism, isn't it? What What does it mean? Is it really cubism? What is it? Uh, is uh, I have um, really. Uh, I found it really a boring show, and one of the most boring shows I've seen in a long time. And I was sort of looking forward, sort of catching up with his work and seeing some actual things, as opposed to pictures of things in Venice, mm-hmm. or you know the. I always sort of sort of wondered about the paintings of the um, um, you know, luggage things at airports yeah. mm-hmm. and how that possibly could match up with this. I mean, I'm fascinated with maps too, but I don't paint them particularly, mm-hmm. and I don't superimpose them on bad cubism. Mm-hmm. And I think it was probably, I don't know, without the mattresses, I think it would have really been a total zero. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, maybe without the mattresses, you could have focused on the recent work more. I don't, I don't know how to judge that. And I, mm. I'm sorry, I have to mention the building because it upstages the ahead. art. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting that it does, and I think it does in Liz's show also, which uh-huh. has a wonderful space for the automobile. You go down two stories into a basement, mm-hmm. and then you're next to the new museum, which is the most god-awful space to look at art on earth. And here are two spaces that uh, probably for far much less money, well, I don't know, Norman Foster probably could have cost a pretty penny, um, that are perfect for showing art, I mean, of a certain kind. Um, I mean, the, 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 the floors in Angela Westwater Gallery are perfectly proportioned. And as someone remember, I was talking to a design design person friend who just isn't too much into the art world, but she made a point to go see the new museum a few months ago. And she said, oh, you know, there's something wrong with that. That those spaces are horribly proportioned. And I think any design person walking into them would say, My God, it's all off. Lower the goddamn ceilings. And figure a better way to get from floor to floor. Well, Norman Foster, who is probably greater than I even gave him credit for, did a really wonderful job. In a very narrow footprint. In a very narrow but, b- um, building. Now, yes. the, the problem is the but elevator does upstage everything. I yes. Agree with that. The, the, but the, um, I mean, I, I, as we are talking about architecture, um, when I first came to New York, the, the thing that, one of the things that really blew me away was the elevator at the Whitney. I thought, I could, I could happily live in this space. Uh, <laughs> I do. And uh, <laughs> um, uh, it's sort of, I mean, yes, it's, it's actually a Rem Kuhaus idea, I think, having this um, room that's an elevator that goes from floor to floor. And Only so, from the second to the third floor. Yeah, I was disappointed. Yeah. I thought yeah. it would go on all the floors, so I wanted my money back for that. All oh, right. <laughs> yes, and, and then also shift sideways and take you to the new yes, museum. Yes, that sounds very yes. good. Well, but, <laughs> Away um, from the new museum. Uh, elevators aside, we're, we're trying to see whether Quitka can elevate us. And um, um, it, it, it's, I, it's painful to say, but I, I think we... Please, whether you see the show or not, like the show or not, the retrospective, which I'm going to see, so I can't recommend it yet, other than the fact to say I'm going to see it, because um, 
there's a lot of bodies of work between those... Um, Actually, there were earlier works on the mattresses, which were really... He was an artist of exceptional promise when he mm -hmm. first hit the scene in Argentina with these really charged, psychologically charged um, paintings about psychoanalytic sessions, mm -hmm. and they were painted in these these huge rooms, these uh, yeah. these sort of uh, new museum-scaled rooms with... Um, and then then through the mattresses, through those incredibly exquisite and, 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 and disconcertingly simple kind of... Um, uh, theatre, uh, auditorium uh, plans. He's, he's an artist who I used to rate, I want to rate very, very highly, but this show, I want to come back to Barbara and, 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 and have Barbara encourage me to have another look because it sounds like you feel there is quite a lot going on in this show. So that's what we're here, that's our business today, only to look at this show, not the elevators, not the retrospectives. But, uh, well, we're all sweat straying from the subject. Barbara, bring us back to it. No, well, I, I mean, I, I love those early works. And, but I, I do find the sort of the middle here pretty interesting, the, mm -hmm. the kind of going back, and it seems it's an obsession, and basically it's interesting not simply visually, but you're sort of, you can see how he's thinking and how he's placing himself, and I also think it's a, he, it's a position, and he's waiting to, mm -hmm. to decide how he's going to move. The, the things on the very top floor I didn't like as much. Mm -hmm. The maps. The, were they, no, the, the, no, the, no. There was the red. The red the, one. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, I like the map the red that one was resolving on. maps. There, yeah. there are map elements in yeah. uh, quite in all of them, uh, in many of them. But uh, yeah. All right. I think we'll be done what we can with Quitka and um, uh, Speroni. Better watch out. They better. You have a very high standard to set with that new elevator gallery of yours. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, it's, if uh, there are plenty of museums that uh, have a, a challenge with the art they present because the buildings are so um, beautiful, um, it's it's better to have that challenge than the opposite. So um, our last show, then we've we've hinted at it already um, with the descent into that um, swimming pool type surface that uh, uh, that rag rolling that Mary Boone also favours with that, I'm not sure what the decorator term is for that kind of wall um, my architect wanted to give it to me in my bathroom and I vetoed it so uh, that's all I remember about that kind of wall but um, uh, well I think everyone's had a go at starting so perhaps I'd better start on uh, Liz Cohen um, yeah, totally flummoxed I'm afraid because um, okay, I see what it's about um, it's uh, yes, it's he's, she's taken. It's it's just a little too literal, isn't it? You've taken uh, the car that's associated with uh, the 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 uh, Eastern Bloc with the Soviet uh, Bloc, uh, the the Trabant, and then you uh, 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 hybrid um, uh, cross uh, fertilize it or whatever, mate it with um, uh, a station wagon that she was very fond of that uh, uh, for her seems to epitomize. Uh, uh, America during the Cold War, and you make this this new vehicle, which uh, you can make a special appointment or go tomorrow and see her uh, do the amazing feat of uh, having it split open and then uh, shut again. And then uh, there are some uh, images on the wall of some tools. And uh, for those of you who are lucky enough to know, uh, but uh, I didn't know, did you know, Barbara, that one could sneak around the corner and watch the dirty calendar? But she's, it seems to come out of a body of work in which the artist, who's primarily a photographer and is kind of new to 
um, uh, auto shop work. Um, it comes out of a body of work, body being the operative word, right. in which this um, attractive young lady has uh, actually put herself through a, a quite grueling um, uh, exercise regimen uh, to become, uh, to, to give herself the body uh, that one associates with the kind of calendar that one sees uh, on the wall of an auto repair shop um, where the uh, proletarians who are fixing your car up for you can uh, relieve themselves from the drudgery of your car with um, <laughs> pictures of well-oiled, uh, lithe-limbed young ladies uh, sporting themselves over your car, sports car or otherwise. So that's uh, where it comes from, but doesn't go anywhere very sexy with the Trabantino. Trabantitino, whatever. <laughs> doesn't even, well, I can't even pronounce it, but uh, Greg, you're more into uh, the mechanical than I am, I think. Uh, were you excited? Um, well, let me just say that uh, the the El Camino that it was based on yes. is not a station wagon, but it's kind of a car with a pickup truck bed okay. in the back. Excellent. So so that in itself is a hybrid car. And it's funny that um, even though people identified as a car, it is in the United States or North America technically classified as a truck. Right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the thing is that I really like the stories behind it and the process of mm -hmm. what Liz Cohen did. I mean, this is support, supported by, like, a creative capital grant. Um, she went from getting the car in Germany to taking it to San Francisco and then going to an auto shop and finding auto shops in Phoenix and then going to Detroit and actually working with the mechanics and doing most of the work herself. Um, the, thing that, the thing that I can't get past is like I go into the, I go into the gallery and I'm like, this is a completely, highly over-aestheticized object. And it's fascinating and it's beautiful and I think that's her intention. Um, but, you know, and, uh, ironically that would probably not be the condition mm. you would find in a Trabant. All right. Um, uh, John, fascinating, beautiful. Would you concur with that in relation yeah, to this? Sort of? yeah? yeah, excellent. And Tell I us. do like the context of, you know, Cold War vehicles no longer produced, cut off, right. uniting East and West, and I like the whole banality of her thinking. I mean, I think it's really aggressive right. to be that yeah. simplistic about things. And mm -hmm. um, I think she's doing it conscious, quite consciously. And you see the calendars. You can't think of Linda. B you can't help but think of Linda Bangalore, right? A yes. Feminist right. Story. Mm -hmm. And she's just sort of twisting things around. Now I don't know what her photographs were like. Are like, and I, I didn't know that she had done a body work on herself also, which makes more sense. So I would say that, like divorcing it from the spectacular mm -hmm. staircase in the gallery, and the fact that I had to go three times to get in, because they were moving from the alley to the front gallery and had lost the keys mm -hmm. so I was not favorably disposed at first but then once it was opened um, uh, and the, the gallerists, galleristas were looking pails of water from the alley behind the yeah. new museum in order to wash the floors because the, they had no running water yet and I said well where do you go to the toilet and they said the, the back alley they meant the gallery in the back alley of course um, uh, so I was predisposed to right. just the irritation factor was yeah. driving me crazy. Yes. But then I walked in and there's that great staircase and there's this really clever car. And I thought, well, there's something going on here. I want to see more of her work. Mm -hmm. But that's as yeah. far as I would go. Or 
uh, this is the category where I would do a museum show. Chris Burden's B car. Um, right. What's the name of Rethko's car that's smashed this way? And we could probably think of five or six other cars. Not the horrible painted BMWs, but real cars mm. that real mm-hmm. people work on. Yes, so Burden, so of course, it's a very uh, narrow kind of crucified on the car, which is um, on his Beetle, which is perhaps a little further than this Cohen will want to go. Um, Barbara, <laughs> what did you what did you make? I mean, of, I thought of it was a kind of, well, there were there were funny other things, and I don't know that I really loved it, but you know, she she made a lot of the parts. Some of the parts mm-hmm. were not not in good condition. She made she made them, and she wanted them to be absolutely perfect and for them to be functional. And I thought it was kind of interesting, the you know the analogy that she ha- runs that runs throughout the whole thing between her own body and the the car yes. body and perfecting mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. thing, and so and strangely it's one of the most self-involved shows mm. I've seen. There's something terribly oh, point, yeah. odd about that. And then taking all the parts, she took all the parts out of the car, the, I guess the mm-hmm. one she made and all that, and took them and had a photo of each, and they're on the sort of graphite. Mm-hmm. Type paper, right. and they're lined up, and they're like little portraits. Right. And so then you have the whole idea that the parts are equal to the whole, and I mean they have their own legitimate identity, yes. and so you know, well, I mean, was, schematically a lot is thought through, and, and, and yeah. taxon, taxonomically as well. Mm-hmm. I I do like that 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 I mean. She'd make a great New Yorker blurb. I mean, it's a great, uh, a lovely story, if you say, mm-hmm. where she started and where she went. Because she actually started photographing um, transsexual prostitutes in uh, Mexico. Right. And then she felt she needed to, beca- um, you know, pose as one herself, but that felt artificial. That's how she got into posing mm-hmm. in the auto work um, shops. And it was when she was in the auto workshops that the idea came to her of this uh, hybrid of the East and the West. It's a sort of answer to Kipling in the way, isn't it? That the, uh, the East is East and West is West and now the twain shall meet. Well, here they have met, um, but they need they have bothered? So. That's, the, that's <laughs> the feeling. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's curious that we're starting with, ending with this and starting with the herring, because in the herring, uh, the herring dramatizes uh, the distinction between process and product. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas here, the, 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 um, does it really do the same? It seems to me there's a rather painful disconnect between the year's effort to produce this vehicle and the fact that all the vehicle does is it, 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 it sort of separates and comes together again. Persuade me, Greg. Um, well, there's also, I mean, a lot of interesting... St- um, she does a lot of interesting stuff about gender. I mean, because she's assimilated herself into this culture of mechanics working, and she's made this device that's basically a big male peacocking device that um, is is speaking towards Latino American culture, um, having cars that that you know are completely highly aestheticized and and gathering attention from women. I mean, um, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot there, and then the the photographs too, I I liked because they reminded me of this topology, like mm-hmm. this, uh, like the the basher uh-huh. uh-huh. um, the photographs of like water towers and industrial mm-hmm. detritus. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there's definitely a grid there. Right, wonderful. Um, okay, audience. 
We've discussed two shows here, Guillermo Quitka and Liz Cohen, and I'm sure you're all bursting with stuff to say about both of them. Let's try and, and be disciplined, though, and do one at a time. Let's start with Quitka. So um, uh, any, any takes on Quitka, defences of Quitka, comments on, on that show? Yes, uh, the lady at the front with the hat. Uh, I love the elevator. I thought that was quite fascinating. And the rest of it uh, was terribly boring. Except, of course, for the building, which was fabulous. I mean, I would have taken all the art out, <laughs> left the stuff in the elevator, and called it a show. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, anyone else got something up uplifting and, and groundbreaking <laughs> and, and, uh, to say about the show that's going to change our mind on it? And. Um, uh, have us running to the Bowery tomorrow morning. Um, all right, well, uh, uh, so, Liz Cohen, Trabantinino. Um, Is that all anybody has to say about Quitka? Sorry? Are we leaving Quitka already? Well, uh, I've, they've had their chance. <laughs> John, John, wants you to, John wants you to have another chance. Yes. Uh, her and Charlie's going Other artists have adopted modernism in Latin America and given it kind of a Latin American interpretation, and I didn't know uh, if people would want to comment on his work in relation to that idea. Mm. Okay. okay, a little bit. Yeah, let's go for that then. Okay. Uh, I'm not really an expert in Latin American art, but I um, have had uh, known several Argentine artists and several Brazilian artists like Otisica and Elijah Clark, and in, uh, in Argentina I know Marta Benuin, the great happenings artist, and I don't think he's in the same class. I'm sorry. And I, I sort of looked at the, the you know, the, the publicity stuff and all the museum shows he's had, and I think of other Latin American artists that um, I myself personally would prefer. Um, so that was it's kind of double disappointment for me because I wanted him to you know like wave the Argentine flag on something, but. You know, maybe it is, I think the consensus, if there is one here, is this, this is just not a particularly good show of his work. Mm -hmm. And the two, two people here that really know his work seem to think that. Well, no, I think it's also, I mean, it's, it is work about displacement. He's an Argentine Jew, and his family came from Europe, and so you touch on, his work always touches on all of that, and he's also an international artist. So, I mean, those are interesting undercurrents throughout his work, whatever, you know, however you like it aesthetically. But I, mm -hmm. I, I, as I say, if I could curate a show of my favorite Quitka, I would produce a show that I think would present one of my favorite artists, I'd almost say. Um, he's really, what I like about him is that he takes... Um, uh, cold information and through a, a painterly process with, that isn't uh, overtly expressionist uh, transforms it into something very poignant. Uh, mm -hmm. He does that with those early maps. He does it uh, with the uh, theatre plans, plans, the, the theatre plans, and with some other bodies of work. I just feel that with his uh, cubism, that it's a little too hermetic, not not very analytic, and way too synthetic. Mm. Uh, just doesn't do it for me, I'm afraid. It's, but I, it's I like the fact that he's launched onto and yeah. typically of him obsessed by 
No. A trajectory. I'm just looking forward to him moving on to the next. Maybe trajectory. it's you know Homer nods. I mean, we, mm. why do we expect that an artist must consistently produce a certain high level of work if they're going to be open and experimenting? Yeah. They're going to have failures. So right. we have to somehow take into account that there might be a body of work that doesn't live up to previous mm. work or work that will follow. Or one hopes one he- one's heroes have the good taste to realize their failures are failures in the studio and not let them out into the world. That's the only I mean, thing. Think, think of De Chirico's Impressionist period. Mm, that was the winner. <laughs> <laughs> His neo-Renoir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Renoir reduxes. Well, they, they are what they are. Um, now valuable, I'm sure. Well, also very valuable as a pre-runner to, to Philip Guston and the, the, the revival of bad painting See? in the there 60s and 70s. <laughs> so actually, I, I would put in a case for late De Chirico. Let's move on to Liz Cohen. Um, and the issues that she raises or doesn't, the, uh, the mechanical, talking of Latin American art, of course, um, um, no, now I'm blanking on the name. Roscoe. Yes, Gabriel Orozco certainly comes to mind in relation to this vehicle. Um, uh, so, Greg Lindquist has brought up issues of gender in relation to uh, Liz Cohen, and um, John Perot likes the um, banality of it. Um, what does our audience make of Liz Cohen? Yes, the lady in the second row. Well, I, I relate to the gender um, thing. I, the, I haven't seen it, but the first, I just saw a video on the, on the internet. Like the, the minute it sort of erected, you know, sort of grew, <laughs> I thought I thought she w- maybe would be dealing with the gender issue, but. Um, that Roberta Smith had uh, an, a little blurb on uh, the Jeff Koons show that is somewhere uptown, the, the porno stuff that Oh, did. yes. Mm-hmm. And Made she, in was, she was relating, uh, it just brought it up to me this week because she, she related. Um, now that after we've seen Kara Walker and uh, we had the little Sue Williams retrospective thing last week, and so those, those people were on your mind in terms of gen- gender um, <clears throat> investigations. And so I thought that that when I saw Liz Cohen, I, I immediately thought of that. And of course, then uh, Richard Prince's car, with, that he would mm. always hated that car, puts all those nudes on the outside. Just, uh, don't really, I mean, that has totally been now. I mean, yes, be Richard Hamilton as well. There's a yeah, whole car beyond cult, the point yes. of being You could fill the whole of Detroit with art about cars. Right, right. <laughs> and and um, it did, I, I thought that her thing definitely did uh, relate back to the uh, art forum news. Yeah, thing. yes, to, to Linda Benglis. Excellent, thank you very much. Great. Uh, more on Cohen. I always like to hear about Cohen. Even. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand the logic of the car putting it together um, because to me German history comes together maybe with Mercedes the east and the west and I don't quite get the connection with the pieces that she put together and bringing out this El Paso and things because she's not Latina she's not, you know, she's Jewish I think with the name Cohen so yes. I don't quite understand yes. what was, uh, mm-hmm. except the mechanicals and the aesthetics, mm. but mm. at the I think it's the Trabant, is the quintessential 
austere, dreary, uh, mass-produced for the worker East European car I, I during that. the Cold War. I know that. And right. then this this car that she's in love with and that you, the truck. Many Americans. Uh, okay. uh, Many Americans sort of feel is like ah, this epitomizes our freedom. We can conquer the road in this beautiful yeah. car. Can, and so she's bringing East and West together, mm-hmm. communism and capitalism, etc. I think that's the point. But you know what's interesting is in this interview, interview I read with her, she said that she wanted to originally get a BMW or a Mercedes and knew and just realized that she could never afford it with yeah. the budget <laughs> she had and realized that this was like a $400 car that she could get. Whoa, the, uh, the devil's in the details. <laughs> but, it, but isn't it also about whether she intended it or not, the uh, sort of um, fetishization of products of the past because mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken this awful ugly East German car is now collectible yes yeah, collectible as in like you know like the street lights from East Berlin are collectible um, and many American cars that if we're old enough we remember is thinking oh my god these are ugly how is anybody going to park them are now look great you know I want that Buick mm-hmm. with the three holes on the side of the wraparound windshield Mm-hmm. And um, intentionally or not, I think that this is that, that maybe she's saying in some way we all fetishize this kind of stuff, whether east or west. Well, I think she decided also to wear a male obsession to to, to go through mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and yeah and, yeah oh you know, sure play I think it that's out definitely to see what it's like and compete on that level. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, I guess. But, um, you know, I wonder. Uh, there must be some women who are obsessed with cars. There are plenty. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to try or obsessed races. with the men, obsessed with the cars. Mm. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I just want to say, I think it's great that we can talk about the work on so many different levels. That it's, I don't think it's about, like, one thing. I think there's so many different things going on, which is what makes it really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that in an age where so many, you know, really well-known artists, I, I think Jeff Koons, you could include in that, um, have other people fabricate their work, that, <laughs> that she's like actually a true artist who is like mm-hmm. getting her hands dirty and making her own work essentially is to be just really respected. And, um, and there was one other thing, but I can't remember now. But those are those are the main points. No, that's that's an essential that's point. point. But uh, yeah. but the point is surely uh, that it's not. Huh. Y- y- yes, it's. I mean, the the Puritans in us, and I'm one of them, uh, who like the idea of artists slaving away and uh, making some discoveries in their studio, uh, do like the idea that oh, she's spent a year making this, but. Um, the point is, I'm not, I'm not going to commit the heresy and the, of being that sort of reactionary idiot who says it's not art, but um, it's, it is art once it gets to the gallery, but while it's in the car shop, it's not art. Whereas a painting that gets to the gallery and is painting in the gallery is also art when it's in the studio and it's on the easel. So, in other words, uh, the labor she's committed to, good for her for keeping herself employed and busy and, uh, and learning something about uh, mechanics and uh, challenging uh, gender stereotypes about who can do what kind of work. Uh, there are many uh, relational aesthetic issues that are very commendable, but what's the problem for me is that she's uh, you know, devoted a year to doing something that isn't art. It only becomes art when she finishes it. 
and that's the, the worst kind of alienated labour because the, uh, the, what you want from art no, is that it's no, art no, no. at every moment of doing it. I disagree oh, I, with I, you. I, well, again, it's like she, she turned her life into her. art. She, she turned her life into art by literally transforming her life to make it all of it. It was obsessional. Yeah, the whole thing was a performance. I, I, like, I feel but like a lot of great art is also really obsessional, and she clearly became obsessed with this. Mm-hmm. You, know, not just, you know, not just the car, not just the East-West thing, but then li- literally immersing her entire life into <laughs> learning how to construct about. this. Yes, John thought about that. Tell us, share it. No, no, I, 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 I think that the car is just... You know the sign of all the process that went yeah. into it. I mean, and it's a conceptual piece. That her working in those shops with those guys is as much a part of the art as mm-hmm. you know tomorrow when they spread it apart or the dumb photographs all over the place. Um, that it's a process piece mm-hmm. more than a. Well, what Some about the photographs then? Are the photographs of her on these cars like made up in the bikinis and stuff? Is that art? Yes, it's um, it's all art because it's in an art gallery. I mean, I'm just I'm very happy with. I've never had any problem with the institutional definition of art. It makes very good sense to me, but I don't think that being art is an elevated category. So therefore, it has to be good art to be uh, good art. So being art is is no is no achievement. But yes, it is art. I mean, uh, what's art? Good art then. Um, I think the calendar's good art, uh, but and and I, I I just no. The point I was making, the point I was making, uh, yeah, the point I'm making actually is not whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, or whether it's art or not. Once it's there in the gallery, I was directly responding to the the point from the floor, which is that it's great in the time when people like Jeff Koons and uh, uh, you know uh, all those other people uh, employ fabricators to do everything for them. If you're Damien Hirst, you employ fabricators to make the paintings for you, as indeed you do if you're Jeff Koons. And so you're saying, isn't it great? This woman actually went into auto shops and learned how to make a car and bring them all together. I'm saying, yes, it's great for her. It's great for women's lib. It's maybe great for the auto industry. But it, it doesn't, it's not great for art because, because it's only when it's done, and it doesn't matter who did it and how quickly it was done, that it becomes art. In the auto shop, it's not art. Oh, I think it is in the auto shop art. Here's where you compare it to Oliver. It's art all the way. You know, the minute it hits the brain of the Off you go and you're making art. Okay, good. Whether or not it's good. Whether or not it's good. Okay. I mean, for instance, uh, Joseph Boy's performance Mm. is now considered art, and then there were little products at the end Mm. of it, and you would only consider those little products the art? Not at all, no, because that's, that's the performance. But... But, um, so this is a bigger scale performance. That's well, but the performance gender. the performance happened out of view, and while the performance so most of his, uh, while and, and also the, the the decisions she took were were at no point ever aesthetic decisions. She took a an a priori decision to to make a hybrid of the two cars. Then she spent a year in the auto shop working on this object, and then she then uh, into the gallery comes. The car, but the decisions that she makes and the skills she had to learn. I think that that car is laid out very aesthetically. If you look at the rivets and the way that everything, all the wires are laid out and go in, I mean, like, I was really obsessed with looking at how orderly this was laid out. I mean, Mm -hmm. those are definitely aesthetic decisions. 
or are they not? Perfectly tooled. Right. Uh, right. So you're, you're really does David uh, perhaps does David mean that the car is difficult to distinguish from an identical car that was made by Jeff Koons? <laughs> I'm sure that's great. Jeff Koons. In other words, couldn't Jeff Koons have made the exact same car, and and um, and we would look at it the same way? Um, but then, but then there would be no argument. Then there would be no discussion about the process. Thanks for your comment, but I don't see it as a question. Is that? Is that? Sure. Oh, okay. I just thought maybe that's what you were suggesting. Mm, don't think so. But uh, but but thank you for suggesting it yourself. <laughs> uh, I have to think about that. Have to ponder that one. Or well, he, he or wouldn't not. have made the car. We know that he doesn't get his hands dirty unless it's with La Cicciolina. Anyway, uh, I think maybe. Um, I think we're done, but unless there's somebody, yes, there's one more on the back. Yes, go right to the back and wait for the mic if you would. Wait for the mic if you would. So we can record it. (laughs) Does anybody know whether the car can actually drive? And does that make a difference for how you see the work? Uh, She told me that it can drive, yes. Um, And... uh, On the road and everything. I don't know that it has a valid license, but it uh, it does. It can drive, and you know, um, yes, she's very proud of that fact. It does drive. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, I think you know. I stand corrected on the aesthetic decisions. I'm persuaded by Greg and the audience that there were indeed aesthetic decisions going on there. I'm not completely convinced that you that you felt that way. I think it was a setup. Thank you very much. See you all next time, perhaps.